It, it really is great to be here. And I travel around and speak in some different places. Two weeks ago, I was in France. Um, okay. <laughs> speaking at Spring Harvest there. Last week, I was at New Wine. And I saved the best for last. I go on holiday after speaking at New Horizon. It's wonderful to be with you. Although, this feels like a holiday, apart from the weather. But the problem when you travel around is, you never know what trouble you'll get yourself into without realising it. How many of you go to churches where they put the numbers of the songs on the wall? Some of you, you know what I mean, the numbers of the songs on the wall. An American Baptist pastor came to Britain and he preached with all the fire he could muster in his guts. He got up at the front of the church and he said, if I could get all of the wine in the world, I would grab it and I would throw it straight into the river. He said, if I could get all the beer, all the beer there is in the world, I would grab it, my friends, and you know what I would do. I would throw it straight into the river. Then says, if I could get every other spirit, every alco pop, even give me alco gel, I'd grab it all. And you know what I would do it, friends. I would grab it all and I would throw it straight into the river. And we would be rid of the devil of alcohol. He gets down. He's quite happy with his message. He gets down from preaching. Eventually, the worship leader gets up. The worship leader looks a bit nervous, seems a bit coy. After a few minutes of resistance, he begins to strum his guitar and says, sadly, as it says up on the wall, we will now sing song 233, Find Me in the River. (laughs) You never quite know what's going to happen, friends, but we're going to have fun. If you've got a Bible, would you turn it on? We're going to go to John chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 4. We're going to look at the encounter of Jesus And the woman at the well. Starting in verse 4 it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him like a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty. And have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Lord, as we turn to your word, I pray you'd be with us. I pray you'd open our eyes, our ears and our hearts to what you want to say to us. King Jesus, whether it's through me or in spite of me, speak to your children, we pray. But also, Lord, I pray we'd have fun. Seems outrageous we'd have a family gathering of this size and not enjoy ourselves. So I pray we'd have fun. I pray we'd laugh together, enjoy being together. As I share with my friends over the next nine or ten hours or so. I pray there'd be something for each one of us. Amen. Perhaps later you might like to read down to verse 42 to the conclusion of the story. But it's just a few things in this story that I think are really important to us. And the first is this ambition ambition in some ways the bible in this moment seems to be untrue (laughs) how to make friends and influence people in northern ireland they start with that scripture is the word of god however verse 4 says that jesus had to go through samaria that's not true there are two roads from jericho to galilee from south to north If you take the Nablus road, the short road, and you're a Jew, you might well get stoned. So you would take the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley is 50 miles longer, but it's safer. And in Jesus' day, no self-respecting Jew would take the Nablus road, the road Jesus takes here. So Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. However, Scripture is no textbook. The Bible is right in the sense that the father had a meeting for Jesus. And his meeting was with this woman. Therefore, he did have to go through Samaria. And this moment when he meets her kind of reminds me of a TV program from my childhood. Do you remember Michael Aspel with his red book? And he used to come along, didn't he, and say, this is your life. I used to love watching that when I was two. And it's like that moment. Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman and says, this is your life. And the ambition of Jesus's was not his own, but to achieve the will of the fathers. What's your ambition? Is your ambition to achieve the will of God or to achieve your own? We've got to look at this because in this moment, Jesus' ambition is to fulfill the will of God the Father. Ambitious not for himself, but for God the Father. Are we ambitious for ourselves or ambitious for God? Because you know what? There are many moments where God wants us to do certain things, but would we even hear him? Because when you're ambitious for God, you have to get off your own agenda. I had a moment a bit like this. Um, I was doing a fundraising trip. It was when I was still at Youth for Christ. And I went on a fundraising trip to a guy who owns a zoo. I figured if you're a Christian and you own a zoo and you can afford elephants... You can give some money to youth evangelism, right? So I went to see this fella. It was January. There was snow on the ground. And I pull up at his zoo and I feel the Lord challenge me. You're here to bless this guy, not to ask for money. Whatever he wants, do it. So I went into his house 
And he'd been really discouraged. He uses his zoo to talk about Noah's Ark and various other things. And a number of, of the secularised media in particular had been attacking his zoo. And he was on the floor, struggling, thinking of giving up. And I said to him, I've come here to encourage you. What can I do that would bless you? He says, I want to take you on a tour of the zoo. I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't even really like animals. And it's January. And I'm in a suit. So we get in his four by four. We go up to the tiger cage. He calls a tiger over. He says, um, he says we'll talk to the male tiger because the female tiger ripped his ear off the other day. So she's a bit violent. And he calls the tiger over. And he starts stroking the tiger through the cage. He says, Gav, stroke the tiger. I'm like, come on. He says, don't do it like this or the tiger will bite your hand off. He says, make sure you keep your hand flat. So I'm, I'm stroking a tiger thinking, Jesus, you owe me big time. <laughs> then we leave the tigers. We go to the giraffe enclosure. He gives me a spade. He says, we're going to feed the giraffes. I've never felt so short in all my life. <laughs> then we drive towards the rhino enclosure. At this point, he says, he's read one of my books, Stumbling Blocks. And he says he, he knows about the fact my wife and I were told we could never have kids. We've got kids. I might talk about it later in a week. I might not. Either way, saviour, he can move the mountains. He can impregnate women from sterile men. Believe for miracles sometimes. But he says to me on the way to the rhinos, he says, my rhinos are like you and your wife. <laughs> he says, um, they're struggling to have a baby. He says, um, would you pray for the rhinos to have a baby? I'm like, I did the classic Christian thing. Yeah, yeah, I'll pray for them as if I'll pray later. No, not now. Leave me alone. He said, no, we're going to pray now. I'm like, okay. Then he opens the cage and his wife joins us. And his wife and himself get around the front of these two rhinos. And they get these rhinos pointing their tusks away from me. He says, yo, yeah, you want them pointing them away from you because they can kill you with this. He says, and I've done this because um, I'd like you to lay on hands. So I put a hand on each rhino's backside, right? And I stand there and I pray that in the name of Jesus, the rhinos would get busy, get productive and get on it. Then I go home. I got an email three weeks later from this guy saying he's decided to keep doing his ministry. He's decided to keep doing his zoo because he'd said to the Lord, the Lord needed to bring him an angel to come and show him that things will be okay. He said, the angel didn't come, but you came. He said, so we'll accept a fallen angel. Do you know what? We've got to get off our agenda and onto God's. Who is your ambition for? Is it for you or for God? But secondly, motivation. Motivation. Jesus was tired, hungry, thirsty. That's why the disciples left him there. And instead of an offer, Jesus comes in with a simple request. Please, can I have a drink? It's not a big ask, is it? But she's rude to him. Only his superior motivation in that moment can help him keep going. She didn't realise he had everything to give her and yet he turned it around and asked her for something. Rather than put her in debt to him, he asked for a drink, please, in verse 7. Jesus doesn't say, I've got living water for you today first. He says, will you give me a drink? And she's gobsmacked, a Jew would ask her, but Jesus never gets his drink. I don't know about you, when I read the Bible, I like to think, what does it look, sound and smell like? Not just what does it say? Jesus doesn't get his drink. 
If you take that into other parts of the Bible, um, I love the story of Lazarus. But when I went to Lazarus' tomb in Bethany, I realised why Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Because there's 15 dead people would have been in that tomb. If Jesus just stood outside of it, he's so powerful, he just says, come out. 15 dead people all at once will come out. Like a Scooby-Doo moment. Can you imagine if Lazarus was a common name? What if there were three of them in there? Jesus would say, not you, sunshine, you go out to sleep. We don't want that one. It's that one we want. But in this moment, he doesn't get his drink. And he doesn't ask again as his motivation to quench her spiritual thirst is greater than that of his physical thirst. What is your real motivation? What really drives you? What's really pushing you on? Because our motivation has got to be to bring about kingdom in our time. I'm from the Christian mafia. Right? I'm like the seventh generation ordained in my family. It's all on my mum's side and then there's my dad. But my dad used to run the American Tear Fund. And he went to Tegucigalpa in, in Honduras, the capital of Honduras, after there'd been a hurricane there. And there was this hurricane. It destroyed the city because Tegucigalpa is lined by clay mountains. When the hurricane comes, the clay pours into the city. And my dad was there being shown around. He was shown around not long after the devastation. They went past the cripple's house where the cripple was still in bed under 10 foot of mud with his crutches on the top. He was gone. They went to this other corner of the street and there was this man wailing by this huge pile of rubble because under there was his family. They went around another corner and there was an old lady bouncing in a way only old ladies seem able to do. And they went up to her and said, where are you going? She says, I'm going to church. They're like, why are you going to church? She said, well, I love Jesus. Do you know him? So my dad says, what? what's happened? She said, I've lost my market stall and everything I had to sell on my market stall. I've lost my house and everything I owned in my house. Two members of my family are missing and I'm going to church. They're like, church, why would you go to church now? She said, this is an opportunity for those of us who have Jesus to show those who don't have Jesus what it means to lose everything and have lost nothing because you still have Jesus. Friends, our motivation has got to be strong enough that we keep going. Our ambition, our motivation. Thirdly, our determination. Our determination. When Jesus starts and gets going, you can't stop him. It's a good picture that, isn't it? There's at least a trace of sarcasm in her. But Jesus doesn't respond to her flippancy or bitterness. In verse 9, she says he's rude and in some ways he is. He was prepared to step over boundaries. Firstly, she's a woman. We're going to look at that more when I look at um, the empty tomb on Thursday. But she's a woman. Women were viewed as marginally better than slaves by many. My Jesus gave her human dignity. Secondly, they're in public. This wasn't done. Even wives would only really be spoken to in private. Oh, for a minute then, I thought, good old days. Anyway. <laughs> Thirdly, Jews and Samaritans do not meet together. There is rivalry, hatred, mutual antipathy. Jesus' meeting with a Samaritan turned everything inside out, upside down and back to front. He transforms social etiquette because he is not prepared to be stopped in what he's doing. He's determined. How determined are we to reach people who don't know Jesus? I used to run a gap year program at Youth for Christ. And there was this lad on that gap year program called George. He had a transport ministry thing going on. 
He used to get on a bus to go and do an assembly or something at a school. And he'd miss the assembly. And he'd say to me, but the thing is, Gav, I was on the bus. I was talking to someone about Jesus. He says, and um, I thought I'd just miss my stop because you never know what might happen. He said, one day I wanted to punch someone. I said, why? He said, I went 25 minutes past my stop. And then that guy told me he was already a Christian. (laughs) This boy wasn't happy. But on one occasion, George went to Scotland. He was based in Birmingham. He went to Scotland. And he got caught up in some kind of hurricane on the way home, so he got delayed. And he said to me on the phone, Gav, it was brilliant. We were stuck for 11 hours at Edinburgh Airport. He says, I spent 11 hours in the waiting room telling the 20 people in there all about Jesus. He says, praise Jesus for British people. They're so polite. (laughs) He says, they'd excuse themselves to go to the loo, then they'd be back. And I'd have another go. I said, how was your book from um, Edinburgh to Birmingham? He said, I didn't make a book. He said, I went and found each of them and I had one last go at telling them about Jesus. You know what, friends? Sometimes we've lost the determination to see people come to faith. Right now in the United Kingdom, we are doing more good stuff than we've ever done. But why aren't we reaping more? We've got to be more determined to share this message of hope in Jesus. Our ambition has got to be for him. Our motivation has got to be to see people meet him. And our determination has got to help us keep going. I don't know about you, but I'm not satisfied. I want so much more for the UK in in terms of what God could do, don't you? I shared this morning, I am so, so convinced that in my lifetime we will see a mighty move of God in the United Kingdom that we've only read or dreamt about before. But you know, if we don't see it, I'm going to die believing it was coming the next day. Because I'm going to choose to be someone determined, but also someone basing on hope. Fourthly though, application. Jesus makes it personal. He knows how to make sure you realise he's speaking to you. Verse 11, she tries to tell Jesus he's stupid as he takes the conversation where she doesn't want to go. Verse 12, she says, why are you any better than Jacob? She's really running out of depth now. Jesus as good as says that if she knew who she was speaking to, she wouldn't say what she was saying. You know, it's interesting, the deeper he becomes, the shallower she is. Just to take you through this quickly, in verse 7 there's a request, it's from you. In verse 10, there's a statement, it's to you. In verse 13, there's an offer, it's for you. In verse 16, there's a challenge, it's about you. In verse 17, there's an expose, it's revealing you. In verse 24, there's a demand, it's within you. And in verse 26, there's a declaration, it's before you. The deeper she, he becomes, the shallower she is. As she fights, Jesus keeps pushing. She came to the well at midday in the heat of the day to avoid the scorn of others. And she met the saviour of the world. And in verse 18, the small talk ends and the real issue comes to light. The truth has permeated her. Jesus knows how to apply truth to each individual context. You know, and whoever you are and whatever your background and whatever else, Jesus doesn't treat you the same as everyone else. He treats you as the individual you need to be treated as. He doesn't look at someone else and say, you know, they're better than you. You know, one of the sins in the church is comparison. It does nothing to help anyone. It either makes you feel better because you're better than someone else or makes you feel worse because you think they're better than you. It's not good. 
Jesus doesn't do comparison. He applies it to us individually. I realised this when I was a boy. I did grow up in South East London, though I was born in Wolverhampton, which apparently is a suburb of London. And um, growing up in South East London, it was fun. But I remember waking up one day at six in the morning. We'd been burgled. I was terrified. I was 11 years old. Absolutely terrified till I found the burglar's torch and the policeman let me keep it. Then I was delighted we'd been burgled. Then later on that day, it was about two hours later, my brother, who was a strong guy in my eyes, he was 13. He rang up, not on a mobile or anything, you know, on a proper like dial thing. And he rang up, he just had his bike nicked at knife point in the local park. It's a hard day. Then it was the afternoon and I was watching children's TV. We used to have these French doors at the back of our house, single glazed as they would have been back in the day. And I'm watching children's TV, I hear a loud bang. The glass doors at the back of the house have shattered. The bullets come through the back of our house and missed my mum's head by about a foot and gone into a bookcase. Just to clarify, not every day in South London is like that. I was terrified. I was 11. I was like, what do I do? I'm absolutely terrified. I don't know what to do. Where's Jesus? What's going on? What's happening? My mum saw my distress, so she gave me 15p to go and get a Mars bar. I sprinted to the bottom of the road to get my Mars bar. I might have been scared, but I wasn't missing out. I got down the bottom of the road. I bought my Mars bar. I got it in one. And I ran back to the house. I was terrified. Where is Jesus? My parents were in ministry. Everything around me seemed to be about faith. Where is Jesus when all the rubbish is happening? I was absolutely frightened. And I got to the gate of my house. And I looked on the roof of the house. And there sat on the roof of the house was an angel. I don't see angels as a man. I saw them quite often as a boy. And you know what that angel reminded me? Not that bad stuff doesn't happen, but that when it happens, God is with us. We live off the wrong promises sometimes. This sort of prosperity stuff where, you know, if, if you come to faith, you'll be healthy and wealthy and you'll have everything you want. You know, that's a fairy tale. Or it's heaven. You can choose. But Christianity is not a Disney princess film, is it? Believe you me, I know everything about Disney princesses. I recently took an exam on Facebook. How many of the words to the songs of Frozen do you know? 100% my friends. But when it comes to my obsession with Disney princesses, I simply need to let it go. However, (laughs) Jesus applies it to us. Christianity was never promised to be easy. He's promised he'll always be with us. So, what's our ambition? What's our motivation? What's our determination? How are we applying to the people we're meeting? And finally, direction. Direction, the final piece. Where is her life going? Verse 24 says, it's about your heart. She tries procrastination. You've got to back a trier. I don't know about you, I love a trier. When I worked in youth ministry, you'd get all kinds of people saying, the amount of people I have met who claim to be the second version of the virgin birth was unbelievable. Now this Samaritan woman, she's a trier. She turns to Jesus and says, the Messiah's coming. It's like, wow, you've run out of ideas. And then in verse 26, he says, I, I am. This blew her away. In this moment, she realizes this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah in this moment. And she goes back to her village and she shares this truth. In this moment, he's not a prophet to follow. He's a king to live for. The truth that he is the saviour of the world transforms her in that moment. 
You know, we too can be open to the fact that he can transform us in a moment. He can change our life in a moment. He can change the lives of those around us in a moment. I think for some Christians, we've got bored of the empty tomb. We've got bored of its effectiveness. We're too used to Christianity. But in a moment, her whole world is changed. The one thing I really miss about being at the Evangelical Alliance and not a Youth for Christ now is I don't get to play as much football as part of my job. I used to just play football with kids all the time. It was ace. And especially when you play with 11 to 14 year olds. Because I'm good again then. Because I used to be a good footballer as a young man, but you know, I'm 36, the clock's ticking. But when I played with 11 to 14 year olds, I became like Pele. It was brilliant. So good for my self-esteem. So terrible for theirs. And I was at one particular residential. We were doing leaders against kids. Love a game of leaders against kids. And we were winning. Ha 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 And I was banging them in left, right and centre. It was brilliant. Then this lad comes up to me. He's the leader. You can tell he's the leader of the kids because he's got muscles where a sort of 13-year-old should just have arms. He's got a scar across his forehead. And he's seen more pain in his short life than I will see in my entire middle-class existence. And he comes up to me in a rather interesting, eclectic collection of language. He kindly informs me it would be in my greater interest to refrain from scoring another goal. (laughs) I get the ball about five minutes later and boom, I score again. This time he's really cross. He walks over to me with an anger and a hatred in his eyes I've not seen before. And he gets a little penknife out of his sock he holds it up to me. He says, if you score again, you won't walk again. Now, now just to diffuse this situation, right? He's a little fella. I'm a big fella. So I took the knife off him. But I should have sent him home, right? 99 times out of 100, you'd send him home. I've done youth leader training on sending him home. You'd send him home, you'd send him home, you'd send him home. Something in my spirit said, what am I sending him home to? So I let him stay. For the last couple of days at the residential, he was the greatest pain I've met, and I have met a few. There was one time we had 45 young people with one leader, and six sat around Mickey so he couldn't move. It came to the last night of the event, and I was preaching the gospel. Now, here's the thing. When you preach the gospel, you're in the rejection ministry. For every person who says yes, 10 say no. So you're feeling vulnerable. You're feeling insecure. If you add to that as well... It was the middle of July and it was warmer than Northern Ireland. So I was stood there in my own pool of Siloam, <laughs> preaching the gospel, feeling on edge and simply saying to these kids, do you know what? The only thing that will deal with the stuff in your life is Jesus. All the stuff, all the things, the ways you've messed up, all the other stuff, all the insecurities, the brokenness, the only thing will deal with that is Jesus. And Jesus loved you so much, he came from highest heaven to lowest earth. And he walked the earth, giving food to the hungry, health to the sick, life to the dead. Then he died upon a cross, taking every wrong thing upon himself you've ever done, ever would do, ever could do, that you might know life in all its fullness today and life in all its fullness for eternity. Then they put him in a grave. And you know what? Three days later, they went to visit the grave, but the grave was empty because Jesus is alive, because he is God and God has to be alive. And he wants a personal relationship with you today. He wants to know you. He wants to live alongside you. He wants to be the friend you've never had. He wants to be the hope you've never felt. And he wants to set you free from all the stuff you've done wrong.
And I explain all of this. And then I come to the end where you do the, the altar call. That classic moment where you ask people to put their hands in the air, stand up, whatever, and you assume no one will. Because it's horrible doing it. Because you're in the rejection ministry. First person to stand up is Mickey. I'm like, hang on. Get him to sit down. He's the wrong one. And I'm like, I, I, I don't really know what to do. You know, he's so, then another load of other ones stand up. And then Mickey makes a beeline for me. And inside, I've got to be honest, I'm thinking, I don't really like you. And I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't like you either. And then he comes up to me and says, I'm really in. I really want to give my life to Jesus. I know I've been bad, but I want to change. And these tears start to flow down his face. And I pray for this lad who a couple of days earlier has held a knife up to me. And I see him meet Jesus. Then I get an email six weeks later from his youth group leader. They were doing a youth group for 40 kids on an estate where none of them were Christians. Mickey had led all but one of them to Jesus. Because you know what? If you get the Samaritan woman, you get the village. And friends, we've got to start believing that God can change the direction of anyone. Who's the prodigal in your life you've given up on? Who's the person on your street you don't believe God can touch? Who's the person in your workplace we need to see transformed? What's the classroom of kids that need to be reached for Jesus? When the Samaritan woman meets Jesus, she doesn't go and get her husband. She goes and gets every man and brings them to Jesus. I love that. The whole village ignore the path. There would have been a path that would have taken them around, but they ignore the path. These men who would normally be dignified run over the field to get to Jesus. There's something so incredible about the message this woman brings. This, this woman who's been looked at so badly, she's at the well on her own at midday. She goes back transformed and they run towards Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. Here he becomes the saviour of the world. Us Gentiles have a Samaritan woman to thank. And you know, we've all got different roles. We've all got different links in the chain. But I don't know about you, I want to be like Corrie ten Boom when she says, when I enter the beautiful city and all the saints around me appear, I hope someone close by me will say, it was you that invited me here. Friends, how are we doing? How are we doing with our ambition, our motivation, our determination, our application and our direction? How are we doing in our walk with Jesus? Maybe you don't know Jesus. You know, if you don't know Jesus... There is only one thing in life that will never let you down and that's a relationship with the living Jesus. Everything else will go wrong. Jesus won't. The Samaritan woman finds when she meets Jesus, she finds that her life may still be a mess but she's got Jesus to share that with, to share that burden and to deal with that. Whatever you face, whatever goes wrong, Jesus doesn't leave you. You say, well, how can you back that up? I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story to finish. My grandma had Alzheimer's disease. Has anyone lived with that in a re- with a relative? Anyone here? A few people. It's terrible. You lose your mind. You basically, you lose your capability to communicate. My grandma had it as bad as you can have it. For the last eight years of her life, she sat in the corner of a nursing home dribbling on a teddy bear. The friends had long gone. She couldn't speak. She couldn't communicate at all. She had one child, my dad. I was one of four grandchildren. She couldn't recognize any of us. In society's eyes, she was the lowest of the low. Because she was like a baby again, but she'd never learn how to do stuff. Where is Jesus when you've lost everything? She'd followed Jesus for 60 years. Where was Jesus? My mum went in to see my grandma on my grandma's birthday. My mum did it for 
My mum's benefit, not my grandma's. My grandma didn't know who my mum was, what her birthday was, let alone presents. And my mum goes into my grandma's bedroom and she says to her, can I pray with you? Now my grandma can't talk, so being a good evangelical Christian, my mum took the silence as the yes she wanted to hear. Then my mum began to pray. Pray that this dear woman would know some sort of peace in the midst of mental torture. My mum opened her eyes and she was delighted to see that my grandma's eyes were shut. It's like, that's wonderful. But then something utterly outrageous happened. For the only time in the last eight years of life, my grandma spoke as she prayed. She said, I don't know who I am and I don't know what I am and I don't know where I am. But Lord Jesus, please love me. You know, you can lose everything. You can even lose your mind. But you still have Jesus. That's why our ambition has to be only for Jesus. That's why our motivation has to point towards serving Jesus. That's why our determination has to be given to the King of the world. That's why, like him, we apply the message and its strength to the people we meet. And that's why, in the end, we know our direction, so we help others find their way to Jesus. Go and get your village and bring it to the king. Let's pray, shall we? Just ask for a simple favour that everyone just keeps their eyes shut for a moment. Because... Um, just have a sense that maybe one or two folks here tonight who don't know what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You don't actually know what it is to have given your life to Jesus, to have said, do you know what, Jesus? Maybe you've been around this stuff a while, but to have said, do you know what, Jesus? I give you my life. I want to follow you. I want to be a Christian. I want to live for you with all I've got. I also think there's a couple of other categories of people within this. There are some for you who aren't sure. You're not sure if you're in or not. You're not actually sure of your direction. Are you living for Jesus or you're not? Are you messing around? Are you not? Be sure. So maybe tonight you, you make a certain step to say, do you know what, Jesus? I'm not sure where I was at before I came in here, but I know where I want to be when I go. And finally, I believe there's a number of people who need to recommit their life to Jesus. I worked with teenagers long enough to know they needed to recommit their lives quite often, many of them. But it seems when we work with adults, we think one decision, it's done for life. I believe there's some people in this tent tonight who are nowhere in their walk with Jesus at the moment. And this is not a moment of condemnation. It's a moment to say, all right, I dust myself down. We start again. I recommit my life to you, Jesus. And I'll follow you once more. So no one's looking at you other than me. I just want to pray for you. But if tonight you want to give your life to Jesus, either for the first time, or you want to recommit your life because you're nowhere with Jesus, or you're not sure where you are and you want to be certain of your direction, you want to throw your life in the hands of Jesus tonight. If any of those three are you, would you just put your hand up so I know who I'm praying for, please? Just put it up nice and high so I can see. In fact, I'm really sorry to ask you to do something. I just can't see. So would you mind being brave enough to stand? People aren't looking at you. Their eyes are shut. But I just want to see who I'm praying for because it's a wonderful moment to pray for you as you do that. So if you just put your hand up, just be brave enough. Just stand. There's, there are many more hands than that. Just, just stand where you are. That'd be wonderful if you're able. I can see. Yeah, there's, there's one of those. One of the back. There's a few more at the back. If you'd be brave enough if you've got your hand in here just to stand so I can see who I'm praying for. 
I'm not going to push you, but if you can't stand in a tent full of Christians, you're going to struggle tomorrow. There's a couple more hands at the back. I wonder if you'd be kind enough to stand just so I can see your face as I pray for you. It'd be such a joy of mine. And if there's anyone else that wasn't sure, there's still time. You want to follow Jesus? Get to your feet. You want to give your life to Jesus? You want to recommit your life to Jesus? You're not sure? You want to be sure? Now, now I can see you all, which is such an honour. I wonder if you just put your hand up now if it's the first time, just so I know the different... Pre- Wonderful, there's a couple of those. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Now put, put those down. I'm going to pray for you. Then we have a prayer tent here. And what we want to do is we want to pray with you further, if you'd let us. The greatest privilege another Christian can have is to welcome someone into the kingdom of God. Whether it's for the first time or recommitment. So I'm just going to pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you that tonight in this tent, people have decided to follow you for the first time. Lord, we celebrate in that. There'll be a party in heaven and I think in the worship there's going to be a party here soon. We delight in that and we are thankful for that. Lord, I thank you that others have made a recommitment to you and we rejoice in that too. But Lord Jesus, we are delighted that you are moving in this place. And we simply pray that decisions made here tonight would last. We pray you would protect decisions made in the tent like this. We pray, Lord Jesus, the next 72 hours, people would find others to journey with. People would find others to share this with. We pray that tonight, Lord, you would protect my friends from the attack of the evil one. I pray too, Lord, they would know that they are liberated in you. That you have come to give life and life in all its fullness. And I thank you, Lord, that in this moment there is not condemnation, there is rejoicing as people choose to give their lives to you. Thank you, Jesus. It would be the greatest honour you could give another Christian would be to allow them to pray with you. Equally, you may feel that moment's passed. So what we'll do is, is do take your seats again this moment. Um, I'm not going to draw attention to anyone, but just for the rest of us, because it's good to celebrate when God moves. From the people standing in a hand show, I counted nine recommitments and three first-time commitments to Jesus. Friends, Aslan is on the move. If you don't get excited about that, we're in trouble. For the rest of us, I'm just going to pray a blessing that we might be fruitful as we seek to reach others. And for those 12, welcome to the family. It's the greatest decision you can make. Christianity is not easy, it's hard, but it's true. Life is difficult, Jesus is real. Hop, skip, wobble, crawl, but don't stop following him. Pursue him with all you've got. And for the rest of us who already know the king, Let's make it easy for those who first come to faith. And let's give them all we've got as well to help them on the journey. And for you 12, I would massively encourage you at the end, and I'm sure Peter and Dawn will remind people, but there's a prayer tent out there. People would be honoured to pray with you, especially if it's a first-time decision. I understand it's a big deal to go to a prayer tent. Well, take your friends. They'll love to celebrate with you. But for now, we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have moved in this place tonight. 
We don't take for granted the fact that you are the God who brings life. And for those of us who already know you, Lord, I pray tonight would have been a fresh reality check of how incredible you are. I pray, Lord, there'd be a freshness to our understanding of you. In fact, Lord, I pray that every day we would live in the light of your salvation. Help us not to get bored of the empty tomb. Help us not to get overly familiar with you to the point where we are taking you for granted. Help us to live in a freshness of who you are. Might we be ambitious for you. Might we be motivated to serve you. Might we be determined to keep going. Might we be able to apply your truth to those we meet. And might our direction always be joining in with the way you're heading. Amen.